are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is brought to you by Ryan Gill of Hunt Primitive, although many of you may know him better from Gill's Primitive Archery. Ryan produces primitive hunting videos to entertain, educate, and inspire others to take up the ultimate challenge of hunting with sticks and stones. He also professionally makes and sells bows, arrows, atlatls, and about anything else you can imagine needed for the primitive hunt. You can find all of those on his website at www.huntprimitive.com. And be sure to follow Ryan on his adventures as he gives out tons of free content for those wanting to build their own hunting implements and better their own primitive skills. You can find him on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching for Hunt Primitive. That's spelled with no space, all one word, Hunt Primitive. And joining us today is Mr. Ryan Gill himself. Welcome to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Steve Angel. I'm giving my buddy Nick a break tonight. He's got a a lot going on, but I'm very pleased to welcome Ryan Gill back to the show for our next installment in our Hunt Primitive collaboration. How's it going, Ryan? It's going pretty good. Suppose I can't really complain. And uh, shoot, last week I just came back from uh, from Texas, actually visiting Texas A and M University, and then went on a hunt after that. And so, I mean, I'm pretty jazzed up. Got lots of cool stuff on my mind, and uh, really excited to kind of talk to who we got here on the line. Well, m- me too. And I know uh, we had to we had to bounce this thing around. In fact, Nick and I were talking about it on last week's episode. I don't know what's been going on, but it's just been chaotic trying to trying to get guests lined up and get everybody on the same page and i didn't know you were going to be out last week and i i shot an email and i get an out of office and then i went into a bit of a panic i said well you know my guests line up for, for this week's not gonna work so but uh now you were you um were you, would you were you spending time with with morgan or was it something else you were doing out there yeah yeah i was with with morgan primarily but i met a whole bunch of people while we were there i was uh, actually throwing the atlatl form and they were uh, using a like a super high speed camera that records i think up to like 2500 frames per second oh wow and so they could see the speed then like really break it down and calculate this the speed uh of the atlatl spear as it hit like a little i had to throw it a six inch by six inch block of ballistics gel with a bison bone in it and uh so but anyway they were able to calculate uh, the energy and momentum of my atlatl throw, which I actually don't have those numbers back yet, but I, I should hear back from them here about any day. But I'm pretty curious to Very see cool. what they come up with. Yeah, and so, what and what what was the hunt you were doing, or what were you hunting? Um, mostly pigs. Um, I guess that's really all that I was after. But I was up uh, up there with my buddy Dax and his son Aiden, and I was hunting oh, cool. at, uh, Philip Liebel's, uh little lease or whatever that he's got there so we just kind of had a good time of it and a good way to kind of blend work and pleasure in the same week well any 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 time hunting in in my in my opinion is is successful but uh, so i won't ask you if you were successful but i'll ask you did you manage to did you manage to get a a a projectile into a pig nope i did not in fact i didn't i didn't lose an arrow but i did have uh, a sow in front of me and she was probably only about eight yards or so but she had a whole bunch of little suckling shoats and i just uh i wasn't really in in a position for wanting to shoot her i know a lot of people we just say well when you're in texas you shoot every pig that you can but uh 
you know, when they're like that little like that, I certainly don't like to shoot the mother, you know. You so know, know the- there's a, there, you're right. There's a lot of people that say that and take that stance. And uh, I don't know if you know Jerry Russell or not. He was actually on the show last week, I guess. But he and I talked about this a good little bit, and I'm of the same opinion he is. You know, you, you can say that. And I get that the you know pigs are invasive and they cause a lot of damage and all this stuff, but man, to to take a little pig, or any little animal like that, and basically just leave them to their own defense, and basically what's going to happen is they're going to starve to death. I, it's just, in my opinion, that's just cruel. Um, yeah, well, each, sure each, to each their own, but that's yeah. just me. So, and I'm sure coyotes and stuff probably get them, you know, relatively quick, but. Uh, you know, and I—I I didn't see really an overpopulation problem in that area. There was, there's really no agriculture, you know, really within miles of where we were at, and I didn't right. see any sort of overpopulation problem. And you know, I enjoy hunting pigs, and when I'm in a situation like that, I'm all for letting the population grow. In that scenario, I know that there are places that there are far too many of them, but. Uh, sure. I don't think that this was one of those places, and I know that they enjoy hunting them there. So you know, always leaving more for for the next time right well so before before i let myself drag us down into a, a controversial uh <laughs> topic of discussion um we've got a great let's guest get, lined yeah, up let's, let's get on to another controversial it, subject yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe i know i'm excited about our guest but i'm gonna uh since this is uh this is a coordination of of your efforts i'm gonna i'm gonna let you do the introduction so take it away ryan all right well we uh on the phone here have michael Bradenbaugh. And uh, I guess for lack of better term, I, I believe we would call him an artifact collector. But I know it goes a lot deeper than that. In fact, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and let him kind of explain a little bit about what he does and, and what he even does with some of the artifacts. So how's it going? Hi, good, Ryan. and Hi, Steve. Nice to be here with you guys. We're glad to have you. Oh, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, yes, I do collect artifacts, and as you mentioned, Ryan, it does go much deeper than that. I'm also a uh, repro- I also reproduce Native American artifacts. I'm also a primitive technologist and an amateur archaeologist as well. Yep, that's great. Yeah, and I know I've met you uh, several times. I know I have to assume that not everybody listening knows that, and uh, but. Michael and I have known each other all for several years now, met at the Silver River Nap-In, same place if you were listening to the previous uh, podcast that I met Morgan. And uh, so lots of good people, obviously, to meet there. And uh, Michael's and his son are uh, some of my favorite people to run into when we go to that Nap-In. So we always get, I mean, caught up in probably hours worth of conversation every time we go. So, so we do, Ryan... We- at- I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. No, that's all right. We, yeah, we do. We end up having a lot of great conversations and sometimes we forget about the thousands of people that are coming through the event to see us demonstrate flint napping and uh, making ground stone tools and shell artifacts and that sort of thing. And we kind of get caught up in sharing information similar to what uh, Ryan has been talking about with his uh, teamwork with uh, Texas A&M, and uh, we, sometimes we have to remember that we're there to, to not only help with uh, get caught up with each other, but to also educate the public. So, Ryan, I know, and I am going to let you lead most of this conversation, but there is just, I'm, I'm just curious, um, and I'll state that, you know, I've, I, since I was a kid, I grew up on a farm, and we used to, we used to 
me and my brother both spent hours walking through the fields after a, a fresh rain, you know, looking for arrowheads, picking up artifacts. But and I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway for the benefit of others. Explain what a amateur archaeologist is um, and how that differs from someone that's just, you know, picking up airheads and, and collecting them. Okay, well, a let's start with the collector angle first. Uh, people have been collecting artifacts worldwide probably for thousands of years now, and that continued on here in North America after the colonization. And there's actually very early documents from, I would say, the early 1800s about uh, people collecting artifacts in this country. And it's just something that uh, people are fascinated with the past. And I think there's that thrill of discovery when you find something in the ground that someone may have used thousands of years ago, and there's always that type of interest. Now, beyond that, as far as an amateur archaeologist would go, uh, so we, we have these awesome tools that you find and, and all the other artifacts, but it should go further beyond that as far as what we do with them. And at this point, you know, we, we have a great interest in archaeology as well, uh, because I not only want to collect the past, but I want to understand how those tools were used. How did those people survive in this environment? And so we take the information based on the analysis of the artifacts, the places where we find them, and the context that they are found in. And we use that information, just like professional archaeologists do, to learn something about these people who are very similar to us in many ways. And I think that helps us to get a much better connection to the people in the past is by studying what they've left over and and it creates a bridge to how we're living today and maybe uh, even gives us some ideas of what we could be doing a little bit better or what we've gotten away from. Yeah. And uh, I know one of the things that uh, when I was talking to Morgan about that, because there's a lot of people that would inevitably ask the question, why is that even important? And, uh, you know, whether it's from the recreational side or from the real scientific side. Um, and, of course, the answer goes, I think, really, really deep into why that's important. But uh, Morgan specifically, when I asked him that question, he thought, uh, thought that it was really important to mention that uh, these people went through massive uh, climate change and habitat change. And these are things that we are actually experiencing today, you know, whether uh, we're really uh, keen to it or not. And sometimes we can learn these tiny little nuggets of information of how they adapted and changed in the strangest of places. And then sometimes we can re-implement those. And it's not obviously on the large scale of saying, well, now we're going to have to start making stuff out of stone points again. But it's it's the little things that they find along the way, you know, like uh, pollen deposits and, and that kind of thing that lets you know. Uh, how they coped with that and what their, you know, uh, their food, you know, where their food was coming from. This is obviously, that's not my specialty, knowing all that stuff. But uh, I just think it's such a, it's not only so cool, but it's also really, really important. And, uh, you know, somebody like yourself that goes and collects this stuff and really spends a lot of time looking for and analyzing it. Um, there's a ton of people that do that and simply just set it in a box somewhere and they don't share it with people. But that's really not the case with you, is it? You, you're you really out there 
showing people every chance that you get. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Ryan. Um, because, you know, I want to share that experience with other people. I, there's that thrill for me of discovering the past, but it's not just about the, you know, the experience that I get out of it. I want to pass that on to others as well. I want them to get to handle these things that nobody before I pick them up, may have touched in thousands of years, and these people are probably the second or third in some cases. But beyond that, again, there's there's a whole study that we go through on analyzing the artifacts, flaking styles on points and changes in base styles, um, you know, the ways that shell tools were made as opposed to bone or stone tools. There's, there's a whole manufacturing process there that we love to look at because again I love to reproduce all these things because I don't want to know just how they did it and and have an idea of well it could have happened this way I want to take that rock that we just shaped into a specific size and shape and design to imitate as closely as possible the original I want to put that on a handle or on a shaft and I want to throw it at a target or use it to cut something and let's see how it worked let's not try to think about it, let's go and let's do it. And then let's take that information and let's share it with people. Let's let them try it because it's not, again, just about my experience. I want to share this with others. And we put these, these reproduction tools in the hands of the public and we allow them to try that. And most people are fascinated by, let's say, flint napping, for example, because it's so far beyond their experience today you know because we've we've got this huge over reliance on technology today uh, with cell phones and the internet and television and you know all those other things that go along with that and I'm not saying those things are bad um, but what I'm saying is that when we th there's a fascination with very basic simple things like shaping a stone into a useful object that I can use to help support or uh, and provide food and shelter and clothing for myself and my family. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why you and I get along so good because we both share that passion of wanting to create a uh, test and then share that information with people. So, oh, let me think of another. I have a ton of questions <laughs> I wanted to start and I know you and I typically have no trouble talking but we'll get off on talking about artifacts somewhere along the line and we'll just lose everybody that's okay. <laughs> oh, absolutely that's okay well you know and I got into artifact collecting as a kid I remember my father worked in the construction industry years ago in Ohio and I remember on occasion he'd come home from work and he would hand me a piece of flint that you knew was not just a rock. And then uh, I was probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old, and I remember having an old cedar cigar box full of those artifacts that my father had picked up during um, you know, his years working construction. And then we moved here to Florida many years ago, and uh, when I first got down here, I remember uh, walking some trails out in the woods and finding flakes on the ground, and I knew that that was similar to what my father had us you know, had, had taught us growing up about artifacts. I knew there was something special about that, that those weren't just rocks. And uh, usually once you start finding flakes like that in an area, then there's a pretty good bet that there's probably more um, arrowheads and other projectile points and that sort of thing in that area. And so places that we like to go look would be, as Steve mentioned earlier, 
you know, plowed fields are a great place, especially after a rain when it's had a chance to uh, wash some of those uh, the, the dirt off the artifacts and there's no better feeling in the world when you're walking up and down the rows in a in a plowed field and you see this beautifully shaped artifact you know from sometimes five six seven eight feet away sitting on a perfect pedestal left there by the rain and it's it's completely washed clean and it's like it was waiting there just for you to come and pick it up and then um <laughs> Places like, oh, uh, construction sites, for example, as long as you have permission to be there, uh, we, you know, we, we'll go and we'll talk to people because a lot of people say, oh, well, how do I get started in collecting artifacts? Well, you know what? Go talk to people. Go to places that might be likely. And I tell people, look, wherever the ground has been disturbed, like I said, construction, agriculture, uh, you know, that sort of thing, those are all good places to check. But always, always, always secure permission from the landowner and in writing whenever possible. Uh, and then just go out and have a look and, and see what you find. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's your, you know, the easiest, I think, way of looking to is, you know, your surface fine. So you're looking for anything that's disturbed that you can just walk around. And that's the least invasive way also. Yes. Um, I know that there's, there's a ton of controversy uh, surrounded uh, you know, with digging artifacts where people will take probes and put down into the ground to listen mm -hmm. for, uh, you know, chip deposits and stuff. And then they'll, you know, dig these massive holes. And a lot of people are doing it, you know, illegally and in, in a lot of places that they're not supposed to do it. And then, of course, that's one thing. But then there's also opportunities, you know, in different places that you are allowed to do that. And uh, and really, unless it's a major cultural spot, you know, there's there's you know, major cultural location, you know, really uh, there's, there's not going to be anything wrong with that, you know, providing that you just treat that with the, uh, with the respect that really it deserves. Yes. And, and you, you said the right thing. You always have to be respectful. Um, there have been places like uh, orange groves, for example, where we've had permission to actually dig in the orange grove. Now, again, these are places that have been disturbed by machinery and that sort of thing. So the context is has been changed a little bit with some of those sites. So that's a little bit less invasive. And of course, you know, we're walking a very fine line with a lot of folks when you say things like that. Um, but in areas like that, you're probably doing less damage than if you go into a place that's completely undisturbed. Because, you know, I understand the, the professional archaeologists are concerned with preserving the information that is there, not just the artifacts, but because right. they're placed in situ in a certain position associated with other cultural items, that that's what tells the story. And whenever people go out and they just wantonly uh, disturb places like that, they leave holes open, they throw trash, they start fires. I mean, and, you know, we've been kicked out of places before, not because we were doing the wrong thing, but because other people were going in there, they're leaving their holes open, they are throwing trash, they're, they're disrespecting the site and the landowner, and they're creating safety hazards too, where equipment, people, animals can fall into those holes and become injured, hurt, stuck, whatever the case is. And so those are all things you have to take into consideration. Now, there's other places like rivers, for example. Now, in the state of Florida, 
it is currently illegal to remove artifacts from the bottom of the rivers. Now, it was not always that way. For years, while it was legal, we did a lot of scuba diving and we found some great artifacts in the river. Now, again, the river context can be disturbed. There's sometimes because of floods coming through that those artifacts have been moved around and they are not in context of where they were originally placed. So the information that you have there is not necessarily being lost by removing that artifact. Um, right. Now, there are other times, depending upon the environment that you're in, in slower moving rivers, some of those items are still in situ if you don't have a high current flow. So uh, places like that, you, you know, you have to be more cautious in that sort of thing uh, before you just go in there and start tearing up the place. And obviously, currently, it's illegal to do that anyway. So uh, that's not something that we're involved in right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that's, that's something that I think a lot of archaeologists in the past, you know, of they're very concerned that people are going in and uh, digging up burial mounds and or ancient kill sites for that matter. Stuff that, that mm -hmm. really has um, not only a big story to tell, but also, also cultural significance. And so that's, you know, of course, one of their biggest issues with it, then the loss of the data that goes along with it. But I'm actually starting to find now that many archaeologists are starting to embrace the, the, the collector and the amateur archaeologist because uh, you're able to find some, some awesome things that professional archaeologists just simply can't. And I think that there's actually getting more and more collectors that are willing to share their collections and show show what they have and also kind of collect a little bit of that data as, as they uh, find that point. You know, if it's not just a normal surface find, if say if they are digging somewhere, I think, uh, and I don't know if you do it or not, but make, you know, record certain depths that it's at and, uh, you know, uh, any other uh, fossils that may be found in the vicinity, um, you know, other things that they can still use, you know, even though that they didn't find it necessarily in that context. But uh so, so I gotta I gotta step in here for just a minute because there's I'm I'm listening to some of this and and some of it I, I rings true and I understand and I almost wish and maybe some at some point we we get Morgan back on here because I'd like to hear you know his side of this um, conversation as well but so growing up I I mentioned you know we used to we used to look for artifacts all the time which was just surface we didn't you know we didn't do any digging or anything like that. Um, However, and I guess I want to put this in a little bit of context. So <clears throat> the, the land that we farmed was everything from foothills to river bottoms. So it was rolling country or it was, you know, extremely flat like a tabletop. I remember one year, and I mentioned this when we were talking to Morgan, um, the University of North Carolina came in and did a, a dig um, on some of the river bottom uh, property that we uh, that we farmed and they were, you know, they were coming in and they were, they were digging, they were sifting all the material. I mean, they, there was nothing that they didn't, uh, collect and catalog and identify. So, you know, pretty much this, this strip of earth that what they went through, if there was any artifacts in that, they, 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 they captured them. Mm. So, but those, my experience with those, and again, most of that's on the East Coast. My experience of those is when they when they are doing those, they are doing, historically speaking, 
relatively recent um, uh, sites, meaning, you know, maybe, you know, 700 to 1,000 years old max, where a lot of the artifacts that we were finding when we were out just, yeah, you know, we found the occasional, you know, um, small arrowhead, but most of what we were finding were at lateral points that were in the thousands of years old. Mm-hmm. So do 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 they do any digging of sites like that in for for locations that would would be in that period of of the atlatl you know again you know thousands of years old i've never heard of that so maybe it does and i just don't know but most of the dig sites that i'm familiar with were much more recent because they could identify the structures you know the 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 where the uh you know, the posts were planted in the ground and the camp, the uh, fire pits and those kind of things. But when you go back to those, the, the older records, it wasn't so much so. So I just want to put some, I want to try to understand some context around when we're talking about the digging, are we talking about, you know, within the last 700 to 1,000 years type of things? Or is, are there digs that actually go on on sites that are thousands of years old? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Morgan this summer is, in fact, working uh, on paleo sites or even uh, maybe archaic sites, I don't know, you know, seven to 10,000 years ago, maybe even earlier, definitely earlier on some of them. So he, he works uh, on the Silver River and also the Wasissa River and, uh, and also the Santa Fe, I think he's working uh, this summer. So, and those are primarily paleo sites, I do believe, because that's what he specializes in. And I don't know the, the okay. details per se on that, but yeah, there's they're absolutely. And I think, um, you know, typically in a in a digging sense, your your paleo points, you know, are going to be much lower uh, than your more modern points. Obviously, they're they've just spent more time on the ground that has collected soil on top of them. But well, that uh, would and, depend on the location because again, that's part of what I was. Th- yes, that's part of my reference is you know on these on the. And Michael, I'm sorry, we're getting a little bit off topic from you. I apologize. No, you're fine. <laughs> um, you know, when we were looking for the arrowheads on the higher ground, literally going out after you know a rain in a plowed field, those were almost always on you know what we would call a saddle or a saddleback or a ridge. Right. And and you know the erosion had gotten down to the point, and what what we were finding were you know the five to ten thousand year old points. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's probably where I'm, it's just a little bit different for me because we didn't have, we didn't have sites that I know about that were that old that you could even identify to go in and dig for them like you could on the river bottoms. And most of those river bottom sites were much, much newer. So Right. We have a, uh, a very famous paleo site here in Hillsborough County called the Harney Flats site. And that produced Simpsons, Swannies, and that sort of thing. And so we definitely have in the southeast a very um, good paleo context. There are actually more paleo, including Clovis types, found in Tennessee, Alabama, and Florida than anywhere else in the United States. And, you know, part of the reason we find those things there, it's all about the resources. Uh, One of the biggest resources, obviously, they had to have was a good source of raw tool stone because during the paleo times they weren't heat treating or thermally altering any of their stone it was coming straight out of the ground it was usually uh, picked through to find the best quality pieces to make the paleo points and that sort of thing and then 
you know, above that, you move into the, the early archaic period where here in the southeast we see our Bowen points, Kirk serrateds, and Greenbriars and that sort of thing. Then you move into your middle archaic with your Noonans and your Marians and your Hillsboroughs. And then, as you mentioned, up in closer to the top, you got your woodland. And then in the Mississippian period times where you're getting toward that much more recent uh, period in history. But... Uh, the good thing here in Florida is that we have a, we have everything from paleo all the way to Mississippian, and our soils. The problem with our soils here is they tend to be very acidic, so they usually are very hard on any um, organic material like post molds, for example. You mentioned uh, you will find those in more recent sites, but in you know, paleo sites, early archaic, and that sort of thing, usually the only thing left is the scattering of uh, stone tools, flakes, that sort of thing, and maybe even some pieces of shell. But uh, overall, uh, we don't, in those late, earlier time periods like the paleos, we don't find a whole lot else. And I, and I understand that, and that does make perfect sense. And I, I guess I should have uh, explained that a little bit, especially to you, Michaels. I, I grew up in north central North Carolina, so it was a lot of clay. Um, yeah, the Piedmont is a tough spot for rock, I got to tell you. You guys got a lot of great uh, rhyolite up there, but as a napper, if you've ever tried to nap rhyolite before, the really high quality green rhyolite works pretty nicely, but once you get into your banded rhyolites, they're a little bit tougher. And then uh, of course, you have tons and tons of quartz up there, quartz points. Um, that is one of your most challenging materials as a artifact reproducer to make something out of is milky quartz and quartzite. But uh, obviously, they did it pretty successfully because uh, I'm sure you can attest to the number of quartz points that you find in your area. And we we did, and I've I've since moved to to Georgia, but yes, we did find a lot, and in fact. And it's funny every time I, you know, I uh, I hear people um, talking. It's it's so funny how the the names associated with these points are are somewhat um, based on location. Meaning the point yes. looks the same, but it's got a different name, and how right. they changed over over time. Uh, one of the one of the prettiest points I ever found was a uh, when I was growing up. It was called a Rowan point. I know was, exactly uh, the type. And it was it was the banded rhyolite, um, mm-hmm. and you could just you know knowing what I at the time I didn't think anything about it, and I'm not a napper, but knowing what I do now, I just I, that was just a that was a skill on top of skill to be able to 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 nap heads out of that stuff. But oh yes, to be a napper in the Piedmont and up around the Alleghenies and that sort of thing. Uh, where you've got argillite and some of your tougher yellow jaspers and that sort of stuff. Uh, I have a lot of respect for those guys. And that's one of the things that we learn from collecting is that when you see these points and you analyze the type of materials that they're made out of, it did take exactly what you said, a lot of skill to make a useful tool out of material that way using antlers and hammer stones to shape that rough piece of stone into a usable projectile or knife or scraper in order to accomplish the the job that you had to do but they did it and they obviously did it successfully for thousands of years well they managed to to live and survive off of them so that kind of speaks for itself between what michael and i do we both uh we both reproduce and we both hunt 
and I reproduce stuff and then go hunt animals. He reproduces stuff and goes and hunts artifacts. <laughs> and uh, there's just not enough time in the day to do it all. Like, that's something that we've specifically talked about. He's like, man, if, if I wasn't so busy, you know, hunting artifacts and reproducing stuff, I, I'd like to get out and hunt with it. And then I tell people, man, I'd love to go look for, for arrowheads if I wasn't too busy making stuff and then going and hunting with it. And uh, so I actually know very little about finding artifacts. I've found a few. and uh, But one thing I do, at least I think I, I understand, is that the terrain was a lot... Uh, the highs were higher and the lows were lower back then and uh, you know erosion over time tends to flatten the ground and so the places that were more the highest uh, higher parts of the hills that artifacts are either the artifacts start to slide down the hill over time or they're just simply more exposed at the top where if you have artifacts that are down in the low spots that's when they'll start accumulating a lot of uh, debris and you know soil and sand that's that's eroded over top of them over a period of time is that correct Michael? yeah I, I would tend to agree with a lot of that um, I have seen some exceptions to the rule though there's a, a site that I know of that you can literally walk along a trail in this area and if you and I'm not exaggerating you can brush away the leaves and start finding a lot of debit, a lot of lithic debitage right on top the soil, and the points that are being found right there are between like five and eight thousand years old, but they're very close to the surface. Mm-hmm. But I've gone to other sites like that orange grove that I mentioned, where we had permission to look, and uh, I'd seen the backhoes digging out there, and they were still finding stuff, you know, eight and nine feet below the ground. Now, oh, wow. the soils were very different though, and this is the thing, is that in that orange grove, it was very, very sandy and there was no uh, bedrock present or hard clays. There was a hard pan level, but your hard pan uh, tends to do, have to do with the water table and the accumulation of iron oxides and that sort of thing that, that solidify and turn into a little bit of a uh, very uh, hard, almost asphalt-looking material sometimes. And that can stop artifacts from migrating up or down because you have a lot of things like tree roots, animals burrowing, and things like that that can change the context of where a point was originally. And also, what people don't realize is points will literally sink into soft, sandy soils due to gravity, water, and uh, insect action in the soil. Um, because people don't understand that soil is not a static environment. It's actually a dynamic environment, and you will have movement within the soil based on those other conditions. So that can really change where you find some of your artifacts and the levels that you find them at. That Yes, you're absolutely right that paleo-artifacts are always, unless disturbed, found at the lowest levels of whatever the site is, uh, if they're present there. And then, you know, other type of types of points are found on top of that. But, you know, at that other site where we're finding stuff just literally under the leaves, there's also a layer of limestone in that area and a very thin layer of topsoil. So the level that you find your points at depends greatly on the soil conditions of the site. Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And I know, like, I'll walk around uh, an area that I used to be able to hunt, but I can't hunt anymore. And I never found any points there, but I used to find flakes. And uh, mm. one of the uh, 
more interesting places that I would find him, which makes obviously perfect sense, is in the is in the pig rooting. So we'd have some wild pigs that would come through once in a while. They would root it up, and then it, rain would come and wash the the dirt off the sides of the points and uh, or not the points, the flakes. And uh, that's where I would find them. But you know, so that's obviously you know only a couple inches down. Yes. Because um, they're not not like they're digging a great big hole. They're just rooting along. But uh, of course, I have you know we would have no idea unless we found an artifact, um, or I guess you know look to see if the flakes are heat treated as well. But uh, yeah, so I know very little, like I said, about finding artifacts. And if you had somebody out there that wanted to do it, mm-hmm. uh, we already established that I really don't have the time, although I do have an interest. But there's plenty of people out there I know that would that would love to be able to go out and look, and they don't even have the first idea of where to look. Right. So if you had somebody that's that's never looked before but would love to go find, say, their first point or something, where would you suggest, like, uh, you know, by rivers, conjoining mm-hmm. rivers, mm-hmm. you hear a lot of times, what would be one of the things that you would look for in an area if you walked in blind? Okay, so what I'm th- whenever I go into a new area where we've got permission to look, the places that I look for, or I, I survey the ground, and I think, okay, if I were to camp out here, where would I like? Where's a good spot if I was going to live in this area for me to have a nice, dry place to camp? And then I have to think about it's all about the resources. So, number one. When I teach my wilderness survival classes, the first thing we learn about is, well, not the, the first thing, but one of the first things is water. You, everybody has to have water, and we have to have it often. So how close is a source of water near high ground with a source of toolstone uh, nearby? Because there are some cases when uh, stone for artifacts was carried from many miles in areas that where there is very little stone, but in areas where it occurs pretty frequently, um, you know, sometimes those things happen together where it, that's where they would go to look for stone is along river banks, uh, lake shores, ponds, and that sort of thing because the water action there has exposed those resources. So I like to go to places where, like I said, when I look at an area, I survey it and I think, where would, where would I like to live if I had to be out here for a long period of time? And then you just go look. Any place that has any type of disturbed soil showing, like I mentioned, um, the shorelines of ponds, lakes, and that sort of thing. Gravel bars in creeks are excellent places. Now, here in Florida, we don't have a whole lot of gravel in our creeks. So the good part there is anytime I find gravel, a lot of times it turns out to be because the natives have left something there in the creek and it's accumulated in a certain area. So those are good places to check. Um, anywhere near swamps, or as Steve mentioned earlier, those uh, bottomlands. Bottomlands are really good because you had a, there was water there, and you had a lot of food resources there as well. It was a good place to hunt for them. So remember, ancient people were just like us. I don't want to have to travel any further than I need to to get the resources that I need every day. Man, if there's a, you know, a choice between Walmart a mile away and a Walmart 10 miles away, you know which one I'm going to. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And then of course you're you're going to find your random and then there's no real rhyme or reason to that uh, in this day and age, but you'll find a random point just somewhere yes. that could have been lost along a hunt. 
uh, which is just going to take place wherever the animals were. So I think that there is a huge distinction there between uh, finding artifacts that are surrounded with, you know, debitage where they sat and were manufacturing mm-hmm. these pieces and, you know, either discarded a broken one or discarded a, a piece that they broke uh, on the hunt and then brought back and replaced, uh, you know, or potentially even made one and lost them in the case of those, you know, little tiny arrowheads, you know, those things are so easy to lose and, and shoot even when we were there at the NEP. And I illustrated how easy it was to lose a point. If you remember, I made one and then walked away. <laughs> I do. I remember <laughs> yeah. that. And then they're like, hey, does this belong to you? And I was like, yeah, I, I thought I picked all mine up, but I didn't. Yeah, it's, it's just that easy. Well, that's right. Because you know, when you're making your points and you've got all these flakes at your feet, you know, you set down one that you've just finished and you start talking to someone or you pick up another piece and you start working on it. And it doesn't take long for that point that you just made to get covered by other flakes or lost in the shuffle or pushed to the side, you know, and that sort of thing. And those exact same things happened to those people back then. And there are some points that you find that look like they were never used after they were made. And there's a lot of various reasons that that could happen. But I'm sure there is that time when uh, it simply got lost. And you know what? I know I set that thing down here somewhere. (laughs) I just can't find it right now. That's right. Yep. And then also from the hunter standpoint, I look at it, you know, that it does exist that you can shoot an animal, not kill it. And that animal pack your, your, uh, your arrow off you know, with your point still attached and to deposit that somewhere else later. Yes. And uh, so just because you find one just randomly in the middle of the woods doesn't mean that, I mean, certainly doesn't mean it was manufactured there. Yeah, um, and, and, and it doesn't indicate that that was a village site or that sort of thing, because that's one of the things that we look at while we are, um, you know, collecting in a certain area is what types of tools are you finding there? Is there a lot of flakes laying around? Are there scrapers or is it just projectile points? Is it a mixture of both? Because all of those clues tell you uh, what type of activities were going on at that site. So, I mean, just the presence of a scraper indicates, I mean, a whole lot of other things. There was a lot of other activities going on there other than, well, we just stopped here to hunt some deer and we all sat here and made a campfire for the night and, you know, we dropped a couple of points while we were here. And that's an oversimplification of it, but that's what a lot of people tend to think. And so there's a lot of information to be gathered by studying what you find as you collect it. And I think that's one of the things that, as you mentioned earlier there, you have collectors that are dying to share their collections with other people. It is no greater reward than to have somebody else enjoy what you enjoy just as much. And um, there's so many people that want to do that, but a lot of people today are a little bit afraid to show their artifacts to other people because there is such a stigma surrounding artifact collecting today. And that's something that, that we as amateurs and collectors and professionals need to get past. And that's the part that we're all struggling with right now um, because there have been a lot of uh, bitter enemies made on either sides and you have irresponsible um, collectors in some cases that have given all of us a bad name. But you gotta remember, not every person that picks up an arrowhead as they're walking down a trail is a criminal or a pot hunter or a grave digger. You know, um, and so, Not every professional either is trying to say, hey, don't touch any of those things or we're going to make sure you get put in jail. 
you know, those are extremes on both sides. And that's what we're trying to get past is the extremism because there is a ton of information and help that we can share with each other. We have got to bridge that gap between the two by, you know, you've got to have collectors that are willing to share not only their artifacts, but information as well. And then you've got to have professionals that are willing to say, okay, I'm going to put aside some of my maybe personal feelings about this, and I'm going to accept that information that you're offering because I think you will find that almost every professional archaeologist would tell you that the majority, the vast majority of the sites that they have excavated or worked on were shown to them by amateur collectors. Yeah, absolutely. And they, uh, some of the archaeologists at Texas A&M said the same exact thing that, you know, that we sometimes rely on the collectors to really show us where we're supposed to be digging. And so it was, uh, it was definitely received more there in talking to those folks. Uh, cause we talked about this subject a little bit. Well, I, oh, I really think that, like you said, that that, um, attitude has been changing over the years that I think you're seeing more collector friendly professionals and hopefully the professionals don't see the amateurs as such a threat to um, their profession or this information or the sites or whatever the case may be. Because again, if we can, if we can start up those successful relationships between the two, everybody moves forward. And that's what we need to be doing. And so, um, but then you, you know, I, I understand you have collectors too that have a very bad taste in their mouth from maybe a bad experience they've had with the professional side or, or law enforcement or whatever. But again, we've got to make sure that we are collecting responsibly and not doing it on state, county, city, federal property, or any place that we're just simply not supposed to be. Yep. And uh, that kind of branches into another little thing that I don't think a lot of people are aware of, and I really wasn't uh, as well until all oh, within this last year or so, and it's something that you and I have talked about, and that's uh, making casts of these points. So that's something now... Uh, that I've gotten into. And so what I'm doing is basically making a, uh, a resin cast. Uh, it's a very highly detailed cast in silicone of these points. Now, currently I'm doing like ones that I have shot animals with, and that's something that I'm putting together because nobody else has really done that that way. Because even the, the points that I've taken animals with, they tell an incredible story and you can even use those uh, scientists, you know, can use these to compare with found artifacts and it may give a little bit of insight as to how they were used on that site, whether they were used as a knife, whether they were used as a projectile. And I'm able to not only show, say, like an impact fracture on a point, but then I can also give firsthand experience um, uh, as to how that happened, you know, how it obtained that fracture. And I'm able to pass that information along with my casts. And, uh, but that also then leads right into where if we find an artifact and you want to share that with people, now there's the option to cast that. And now you can share that point without having to continuously handle mail, risk breaking or losing. So you essentially you could have a whole collection of points to share to people and, and there's no risk involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. I love the idea of casting artifacts because you can do that with 
just about every type of artifact, whether it's bone, shell, stone, whatever. And um, I, I love it because it is extremely detailed. It shows every flake scar, every little fracture, you know, all that sort of thing. And there is tons of info to be learned from that. And again, that way, you know, if, if I'm the collector and that's my prized artifact that, that I found years ago and it's very special and dear to me and all that sort of thing, um, you know, when I can let the professional safely cast that and now they can study it and I can still have my artifact and now we both win. And so again, that goes back to where we're, we're both getting the reward of sharing the information, yet I, me as the collector, I still get to to have that to take around with me to show other people and that sort of thing. But the, uh, the professionals have the artifact to study the information that it gives them. Now, and just what you mentioned about being a flint napper, when you break a point during manufacture or during use as a hunter, those are, I actually really love those kinds of things because when I find a piece that was broken or fractured in the exact same way, I can pick up that thousands of year old piece of stone and go, man, I know exactly how this guy <laughs> broke this thing. And he was probably as mad as I am when I break mine. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Because I do that all the time myself. I break something and then whenever I see an artifact uh, or find just like a broken back, back half at a site, it's uh, it's amazing how I can look at that and just be like, I know exactly what this, what this man just went through. <laughs> Yeah, and that goes far beyond that. Just that, well, it's a neat, it's a pretty cool rock that I found, and now it's in my case at home. Now, because we've studied that, because we've made them and reproduced them, there's a whole story that goes behind that piece of stone, you know? So now we have all these stories in stone, and there's just so much information to be gleaned out of that, but you have to. You know, you have to go beyond just the picking it up, putting it in a frame, and it goes under your bed and stays there or in a cigar box or that sort of thing, you know, because as a collector, again, it's a great thrill for me to be able to share with other people, and it's even greater when we can all learn something from it. And, you know, that prof I've had many, I've had the opportunity to work with the folks at Texas A&M, with other archaeologists from, uh, you know, state parks, other museums. I've had a chance to do reproductions for museums and actually some work for the uh, military up at Eglin Air Force Base. And uh, in all of those experiences, you know, um, these very, uh, very well-educated people um, have had an opportunity to say, wow, when you made that and, and I watched you do it, I actually learned something that I didn't know uh, from my previous study. So that's a big thrill for me because, you know, those guys, I don't, I don't have the PhD. I don't have all the diplomas on my wall that they do, but sometimes they don't have the dirt under their fingernails like I do. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And that's, and that equates right then into the hunting as well. That's, that's one of the reasons I think I'm well received with them is because they, they have the, we use the same analogy with Morgan where he's got so many pages of a book and then I have all these other pages and but when we put them together, we have something that's that's mu much more like a completed book. And so it's again, it's it's like now you show up and you have even more pages that that we didn't have. And uh, so yeah, when you can work all together with these uh, with these different people and these slightly different demographics, but all still surrounded with this holistic uh, collection or art or reproduction, uh, there's so much to be learned. 
by getting together. Well, and and I'm gonna throw another one out here in in uh, hopes that I I don't offend Morgan by saying this, but you know I can't speak for Texas A and M. Never been there, don't know, but I I can speak for the university in north carolina that i watched uh that dig take place over the course of a few months um you know when i was much younger i guess i was in my 20s at the time but you know everything that they pulled out for the most part was was cataloged was examined and it was put into storage and you know unless unless a student takes that out for some research or something down it, I mean, it's locked away. Nobody will ever see that again. Right. So if you've got people uh, like you, Michael, and, and I grew up with a, a, an older gentleman who I know has, has long since passed along now, but, you know, he had a private collection like that and he would welcome people and probably one of the, the, the nicest collections that I've ever seen. Uh, now he wasn't, to my knowledge, he wasn't doing any digging. Most of what he found was, um, surface or near surface, um, and I'm I'm sitting here drawing a blank on his name right now, and I know it as well as I know my own. But I do know that at the time he had had several run-ins with a uh, gentleman by the name of Doctor Coe uh, that worked at that university. That you know, and this is God, this is 30 years ago. Um, that really did look down on on private collectors and didn't you know he didn't think anybody should even pick up a an airhead if they spotted it while they were walking across their yard. Um, so it I get that whole extreme thing, but it, there's another side to it that you know the in some cases some of these universities and so forth are locking away a lot of a lot of history that the average person will never get a chance to see. Yeah, you're absolutely I mean, right about really, that. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. That's that's one of the great things about those casts, though. With now, you know, not, other people are casting. Actually, it's it's not a very common thing, but when you can get points that are really special and get them cast, it, you can make an infinite amount of these things. You just right. keep pouring the mold, and then it can be shared in so many different places. Mm-hmm. And and some of these casts, not necessarily mine, because I just got started in, on it. Um, but some of these casts are look exactly like the original. They obviously just don't weigh the same because they're made out of resin instead of stone, but they still have all the, the making characteristics. And, and then most of them that I've seen also come with a description as to where they were uh, excavated from. And So yeah, one the other question, type. and I'm going to pose this to, to both of you guys, because, I, I Ryan, I'm obviously, and everybody listening knows that you you do a lot of, of, of napping and, and recreation um, and, and Michael, it sounds like you do as well, but here's the question I would ask you and, and I'll ask it from a perspective of, you know, have you ever, have you ever done what I'm about to ask, or do you know anybody that has, you always hear about, um, the Flint napping people recreating stone points. Um, what you don't necessarily hear a lot about is recreation of all the other tools, specifically the one that I would, I would love to know if anybody has, um, you know, in, with any kind of um, uh, re- re- repetition, recreated things like the polished stone tools, like the <laughs> the celts and the axes and those kind of things. I mean, because obviously that had to be a lot of work, but I, I just wonder, have either one of you guys tried it or do you know anybody that has? Michael's that guy. Awesome. <laughs> that's, that's funny that you say that, Steve. Yes, um, I have a passion for 
not just arrowheads. A lot of guys just collect arrowheads. I love a lot of different types of artifacts. And um, when I see something that I really like, I, it kind of gets into my mind that, man, I have got to make one like that. And, and we go through some intense study and we go through and we recreate it. So um, some of the things that you're talking about would be like celts, uh, grooved axes and that sort of thing, uh, banner stones, uh, gorgets, uh, all uh, plummets, all kinds of different stuff like that made out of what we call groundstone. Or mm -hmm. uh, peck and grind is the method that it takes to make those things. And so rather than, than hitting a stone with uh, like a piece of flint with a hammer stone or an antler and taking a flake-shaped piece of stone off of there, we take a piece of stone, let's... Um, Let's say green stone, for example, and that's a very general term for a lot of different types of stone. But um, I have some of those beautiful uh, green stone that we got from some mountains up in, when we went on vacation up in Virginia because I did my research and I found out where the best quality green stone in the country comes from. And we just happened to be going to stay that uh, week up there in that area. So my sons and I made a... Um, little expedition to the top of these mountains and we got some of this gorgeous greenstone and then what you do is if it's possible you try to flake a preform into the shape of the axe or the celt as much as possible by using direct percussion but then once you've gotten to that point and that's if the stone will flake because there's some stones like granite that forget it you're not going to run a flake off of that thing um, you can knock chunks off, but it does not flake well because it's not a crypto-crystalline type of stone. Uh, and then you have this green stone, which is actually what's considered a metabasalt. And that will flake a little bit. And so reduce it that way first because that was the quickest and f easiest way to do it. And then you take a, a stone that is harder than the stone that you're trying to shape. And you start actually making all these little pecks on there, kind of like a chicken pecking at, you know, seed on the ground. And it kind of sounds like that, too, except a lot louder and a lot more times. <laughs> and you start pecking away and it creates a lot of little fine scars. And you start basically what you're doing is sculpting the rock into the shape that you want. And once you've pecked it for a while, then you take that stone that you're pecking and you grind it on either um, sandstone or a rougher quartzite or something like that, maybe even a granite, to try to grind off some of those peck marks. And then you, you reassess it. You look at it again and you go, okay, so how do I continue to shape this to get it into the final uh, blade configuration that I like? And you peck some more. And there's a general rule that says uh, 15 minutes of pecking is worth 30 minutes of grinding. Okay, so the, the pecking is the faster way to remove the material than the grinding is. But eventually, once you've got it pecked into shape, then you grind it to finish it off. Because, you know, everybody likes it to look pretty at the end. Everybody wants something shiny and polished and all that other kind of stuff. And then, then you got to go into the polishing process. And what you do is if you take some chert or flint and you crush it up into a very fine powder, one thing I will tell you is just like in flint napping, make sure you are working in a very well-ventilated area because powdered uh, flint and chert breaks in such a fine particle, it's actually scientifically considered a fume. That's how it's graded. And when you inhale that over a period of time, you can get a disease called silicosis, which is basically like black lung. It's a bunch of tiny microscopic razor blades that cut into your lung tissue and they create scar tissue. 
and it's just a horrible thing. You don't ever want to have to deal with that. But um, then you, you take that crushed up flint or chert dust, add a little bit of water to it, and then use that as the abrasive to polish your uh, stone tools on. And then eventually, if you take, uh, once you get to the end of that where it's just about polished where you'd like it, if you want to get it really glossy, you can take a piece of leather with some wood ash and polish it further with that. Or if you take a charred log where you, you find a log that's been charred by a fire or you can char it yourself. And if you rub that stone tool on that charcoal charred wood on that log, that acts as a very mild abrasive and it will actually polish up the tool to a mirror finish. But it, you know, it takes a lot of time. It's not like I can nap a point in, I mean, if you want something just quick that'll kill an animal real fast, you can do something with um, in anywhere from five minutes up to several hours, depending upon the size, the complexity, the materials, the tools that you're using, all that kind of stuff. But with a ground stone tool or something that you peck and grind, it's a much more involved process. But what I'll tell you, it does not take weeks and months for to do that because I've I've pecked them completely from the beginning without using any power tools, grinders, any of that kind of stuff. And I can make a decent celt that will absolutely cut a tree down in probably about eight to ten hours. That's a, a so I would have thought it would have taken much longer. Um, Again, and if anybody it depends has on never, the size of the tool right. and the material that you're making it out of. And for anyone that hasn't seen one of these things, um, and I've never found a celt. I've seen several. Um, the gentleman I was talking about earlier had several. And when the ones that are finished all the way out are just, I mean, I think they're one of the prettiest artifacts you can find. It's it just the... Um, they're, because they're polished to the point where they're just, they're, they're so shiny. Um, but I will tell you a funny story real quick and it's actually happened. Well, actually I'm gonna throw two funny stories in here. So, um, I mentioned that I looked for these things a lot growing up and my father, I grew up on a farm. So whenever I was looking at the ground, I wasn't doing my work. So it drove my father crazy. But, um, <laughs> you know, I found, and I've still got, uh, you know, a couple of boxes of these things that I picked up and actually I found one um, chipped stone axe but the funny Ooh. part is I found it in two pieces about eight years apart hmm. um, and I still have both of the pieces to it and it was fairly small I'd say maybe uh, five inches uh, across and you know you could I, through the, the thinnest part or the, the smallest part where they would actually wrap it to the handle you know I can I can reach around it with my finger and my thumb the other one that was funny, um, and yeah, I have to explain this a little bit. I, I don't think either one of you have ever been involved in raising tobacco. That's what I grew up doing. Um, and we would we had things called what were called plant beds, where we would actually do because the tobacco seed was so small, uh, and you had to germinate it so early. You had to actually put it, you know, create a bed, throw out the seed, and cover it with plastic so it would the the sun would make it warmer than. Uh, than normal so it would germinate earlier and you spent a lot of time working on these things and you typically had where you would have to roll this this plastic off during the heat of the day in some days and then roll it back in the afternoons when it was going to get cool and where i'm going with this one year i was i was doing this and we would take stones and put it on the plastic after we rolled it up to keep it from blowing away and i bet i picked up this one stone 20 times 
before I even realized what it was, and it was a grooved axe. Um, ah. And I've still got it. It's 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 a massive thing, and I'll be honest, I don't think it was ever finished, just because it the the groove is not very deep. But I mean, mm-hmm. once you once you once I realized what it was, I was like, you an idiot. You didn't even realize what this what you've been moving for for you know a month. But uh, I never found a polished celt. I really wished I had, but I never I never did. Yeah, once you're um, in areas like from North Carolina southward, they're a lot less common than once you get up into the Great Lakes area, the Northeast, uh, the Ohio Valley. And actually, Iowa is the heartland of grooved axes. So to find any grooved axe down here in the Southeast uh, is a fairly rare occasion. So that was uh, that was an unusual artifact you were able to find. Yeah, and it was right on the, the I, I grew up right on the North Carolina-Virginia border, about in the middle, oh, okay. middle part of the Piedmont of the state. So. Now, the, the chipped uh, axe that you found in two pieces, was the patina different on the two pieces? No, it was, um, so it was, and I'm pretty sure... I've always assumed it was rhyolite, even though it was so the you know the inside where it was broken, and I think it was actually broken uh, by a, um, a a disc arrow display. Okay, that's that's the point I'm getting to because yeah, sometimes if you if you have a different patina on the two separate pieces, a lot of times it was broken in ancient times. But if you get a piece where whether it's an arrowhead or an axe or whatever you're looking at. Um, the farm machinery is really tough on artifacts and to find a piece in a plowed field that doesn't have some type of plow damage on it is actually fairly unusual. Well, and, and the, so, and, and this is how selfish I was about trying to find these things growing up is I actually, um, even though my father hated doing it because it took so much longer to do, I would, I would look forward to when, you know, he would actually, we would plow the fields with a, what, what they call a moldboard plow because it 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 didn't damage as much as the disc arrows did as far as breaking right but the this one was i'm almost positive it was broken by a disc arrow and it you know the the um the cross section where it broke is solid black but oh the patina, there you go okay that's another the, indicator right the patina on the outside is a is a, a dark brown so it had a, i mean it's got a lot of patina on it um so anyway yeah we we really went off on a rabbit trail there, but I'll have to I'll have to try to dig both of those up, and uh, I think I still have them. I lost some of some of the artifacts that I had in a going out of marriage uh, event about twenty some years ago now, and I, I never was able to recover them. And I but I'm pretty sure I still have those. I'll have to dig them up and, and send you a couple of photos. Yeah, I'd love to see them. Now you mentioned earlier about the dilemma of. Uh, do I donate my artifacts to a professional institution? Um, there's a couple of different camps on that, and I've heard some good stories, and I've heard some not-so-good stories on that. What I want people to understand is that the reality of your good intentions. So you've got your grandfather's arrowheads and, and maybe some of your own that you found over the years, and, well, you know what, I really don't want to keep all this stuff, and it's time to let some of it go. What do I do with it? Um, you know, do I, none of my kids want this stuff. Uh, you know, I don't want to sell it at a garage sale, that sort of thing. So maybe I can donate it to a museum or university. Now, those are really good ideas, I I have to tell you. But the reality of it is most museums and universities do not have the space to display your artifacts. 
So if you donate to those types of institutions, understand that they will probably never see the light of day again. They will end up in drawers in a storage area somewhere. They'll be probably maybe even cataloged and that sort of thing. But the, the university or the museum will not have the same value on them that you do because there is no information about how they were found, the context, or anything like that. So to them, they're nice, but they don't really tell them what they're looking for. So, you know, people just need to have a very um, good understanding about how their prized family heirlooms will be viewed by a professional institution before they give them there. Don't give them their thinking that they're going to be put out on display for the public to, to enjoy because that's usually not the case. Sure. And I was actually getting ready to say the same thing, and you went right where I was thinking. Without the, without the history of where, how, what conditions, everything else where it was found, it, it's like you said, it's, I don't want to be callous and say it's a rock, but for them, that's pretty much all it is. Yeah, it's kind of a real neat paperweight at that point. Right. <laughs> yeah, all that some of that stuff can just be a dime a dozen if it's like I said, if it doesn't have a context to go with it. It's you know, points are very, very common. So unless it's something that's extremely rare or finely curated, then it's yes. it's gonna be uh, pretty much just stuffed in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> well, I spoke to uh, the head archaeologist at a very famous uh, university one time, which I will not mention right now. And in her office, she had a Clovis point just sitting on the shelf with her pencils and paper clips. <laughs> and I saw the artifact as extremely valuable, not necessarily monetary wise, but because it was a great study piece. It was a banded uh, rhyolite double fluted Clovis. And it was super thin and extremely well made. But this uh, professor said, well, it was found in a riverbed, so it's out of context, so basically it doesn't have much value. And I thought, wow, it, there are people in this country that would just jump through all kinds of hoops to have the honor of possessing an artifact that rare, and this person didn't really assign too much value to it at all because, again, it was found out of context. So, yeah, you know, I, I was a little bit, you know, sorry to see that. <laughs> yeah, I think I would be too. <laughs> so what about, okay, so what if you have people that want to go out and collect their own artifacts, and that's great, but not everybody's able to do that. So, so let's say somebody wanted to buy artifacts. What do we do about that? Okay, so there's a big controversy over you're, you're creating a black market for artifacts. So let's, let's go beyond all that. We're not, I don't really want to deal too much with that right now just because that opens a whole other can of worms we really don't have time for. But let's talk about venues like eBay, for example. So let's say I log on to eBay and I want to look for arrowheads from my state. Uh, I would caution anyone about purchasing artifacts on the Internet. Um, <laughs> based on photographs and somebody else's story about where it came from and this, that, and the other thing. And here's, here's why, and I'm speaking from personal experience. Um, I had reproduced some stone plummets years ago, and they were sold as reproductions. I, sell, I do not misrepresent any of my work. If I made it, I will tell you that I made it. Now, I strive to make everything as authentic-looking as possible. So... These, the stone plummet was sold 
to uh, someone who since then sold it to somebody else and to somebody else and it changed hands three or four times. So when I talked to another collector, probably, I don't know, two or three years after I sold this thing, uh, he showed me a case of his artifacts and that stone plummet was in there with his authentic artifacts. And I said, listen, just out of curiosity, where did you find that plummet? He said, oh, I bought that from so-and-so, and he found it up in Dade City up on a lake and, and along the shore while he was out walking, and it had a whole story now attached to it. And I asked him, I said, just out of curiosity, can I ask you what you paid for that? He said, I paid $300 for that. And I said, well, I hate to break the news to you, I made that plummet about three years ago, and I have pictures because I, I document all of my artifacts with photographs so that there can't be any mistakes later. I said, I can show you the picture of that in my living room. And uh, he was very disappointed at that point. But the point being is, unless you have handled a lot of artifacts that you know are authentic and you know how patinas work, about how the and patina is the chemical change to the surface of a stone as it's in contact with soil and water and the chemicals that are in the soil and all that other kind of stuff. Um, unless you're very well versed with how those things affect the types of stones found in the areas that that artifact is from, you know, um, I I would say be extremely cautious about spending your money because there is a lot of re I can go to eBay right now and pick out fake after fake after fake that is being sold as an authentic artifact. And that's that's how I will classify a fake in uh, contrast to a reproduction. A reproduction is one that is being sold for exactly what it is. It is not being misrepresented as an authentic artifact. It is a reproduction of an authentic artifact and there is no hidden secrets or knowledge about that. And a fake is one that is a reproduction, but is being misrepresented and sold as authentic. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, there's definitely no shortage of them. I've seen them on there as well. When I'm looking for uh, some material, sometimes you type in flint napping and you'll have, you know, no shortage of 800 points show up in front of you. And, and many of them are, like I said, just reproductions or just modern main pieces. But there are so many pieces on there that are listed as real artifacts. And and uh, it doesn't take somebody like you or I that, that works with stone <laughs> all the time to know that, you know, that's a, a pretty freshly broke piece of stone. And, but and Ryan, of it what, has a certificate of authenticity that comes <laughs> with it. So it must be real. That's right. It's because it's the uh, they found that obsidian point in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. Although I will say, so here's something that's funny you brought that up because I actually was going to touch on that. And I know we've gone down a lot of rabbit trail. This is actually a fascinating topic to me. So um, I, I think we may we may have multiple discussions about this. But I will say that that growing up. You know, in in North Carolina, where I did again, you know, the central P, North Central Piedmont. Um, you know, you obviously found the rhyolite uh, heads all the time. You found the quartz all the time, but on occasion, you actually also found points made from materials that did not come from the area. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they were they were trading what they had. Right. Um, but you know, I, I have personally got a few that I found in my collection that were made of a type of Jasper that there was none anywhere in the area. Um, now I would be, 
suspicious, not obviously, you know, you guys can probably tell a fake right away. I would probably be suspicious of the, you know, one that looked like some of the ones that I found had I not been the one that actually pulled it out of the ground. Um, how, how, you know, how far have you guys seen, you know, stone out outside of its, its, uh, normal area you know we're through trading and so forth i mean was how common was that to find stuff that that traveled hundreds of miles or even thousands of miles from where it could be found natively i don't have a ton of experience in that and i'll let michael tell his on that because i know he'll have a better answer on that but just to uh, when i lived in montana there was not a lot of napping rock in the area that i lived so they uh obviously sourced that from places pretty far away and of course where i lived uh in lewistown which is in the, right in the center i mean you cannot get any more in the center of the state so you're talking about pretty far distance from a lot of places and i found uh, uh different materials like back halves um stuff like that and everything from obsidian that came down from uh, came from down in yellowstone to knife river uh church uh all the way from north dakota and then uh, even moss agate from down uh, in the Billings area. So, I mean, there's they would definitely travel pretty far. And even, you know, porcelainite, you know, from Montana uh, in the Wyoming. But I'm sure, you know, to travel what we consider a state or two today is, is not much uh, sure. in, you know, for their, their trade routes. I'd love to hear yeah, that, what Michael has to say, and then I've got one thing I'll throw in there. Yeah, the, the trade routes were countrywide. Um, for here's a quick example. I know we're talking about stone, but uh, one quick example is down. I love to make uh, shell tools as well, and one of the shells that we find here in the Gulf Coast is the uh, bizicon or the lightning whelk. And that particular type of conch shell is found all the way out in the Spiro Mounds in Oklahoma and those burials out there. And wow. those shells are found nowhere near that state. We find native, uh, we'll find copper here in the state of Florida and some of our artifacts up around the Lake Jackson, Tallahassee area. And those, that the closest source of native copper of any decent size is in Tennessee. And more likely that copper, which can be chemically traced back to those areas through analysis, usually comes from the uh, upper Michigan area. Um, but I have actually, I know of, Ryan, you had mentioned uh, obsidian. I know of four obsidian arrowheads that have been found here in Florida by collectors. Now, if you t which doesn't seem like a whole lot, and it really isn't, because if you take the total number that you find here in the state, and only four of those that I'm aware of were obsidian, you, that tells you that uh, that certainly was not the norm. And our closest... A uh, source of obsidian is probably Oregon that I'm thinking of to the state of Florida. I might be wrong about that, but that's the closest one I can think of right offhand. So you're Montana, talking half Utah. the country away. Yeah, yep. a, a really, really far. So there were definitely a lot of trade routes. Uh, we were at a hunting camp one time up in North Florida, and while we were riding four-wheelers up and down the um, dirt road, I noticed some flakes, and I stopped, and I started looking around, and I found two pieces, actually three, of a steatite or a soapstone uh, bowl. And the closest source of soapstone or steatite to us is up in central Georgia. And then of course you have it up in North Carolina and Virginia and those areas up there. 
So I'm not sure which of those areas it came from, but it's at least from uh, central Georgia. So yeah, trade definitely happened and uh, sometimes on a very local level because that's another thing you learn through study is if you look at macro fossils in some of the church and the flints, because a lot of that stuff, if you just look at colors, man, colors can be very similar from place to place, county to county, state to state. So what you have to do is you have to look at some of the macro fossils that you find in that shirt and that stone, and then you can start to nail it down to a much more localized source. Um, there's some uh, chert here we find in the Tampa area that has a very specific type of auger seashell that is in that. And um, I have seen that type of chert probably three and four counties away, at least, you know, within a couple of hundred miles. So I know here locally I've seen that because we have a large source of uh, native stone here within our county, whereas in some of the other counties surrounding us, you don't have that. So needless to right. say, that stuff was traded to those other places. So quick question for either one of you, because I have, I have seen one in my life, and it's been a long time, and, and I do trust the gentleman that, um, that showed this to me. It was the same, the same person I was talking to early, about earlier, but have you ever ran across a point that was made out of glass? Um, I've seen that had been traded. I have. I haven't personally found one, but there are examples of that in the Overstreet uh, manual, which does make perfect sense because when the Europeans came and, and made contact, uh, I believe they specifically wrote about trading like broken bottles, stuff that was essentially useless to them, but it was right. just gorgeous little piece of glass that they had never seen before, and. Uh, um, you know, shoot, even Fred Bear actually wrote about something similar to that when he went and visited Africa. Uh, and their shaman was looking into a broken reflector, you know, from like a bicycle or something. So it's kind of along the same line. Somebody comes along with something that they've never seen before. And so, you know, sometimes I guess they would just save that piece of glass for, you know, to look into or whatever. And then other times they could easily turn that into a trade point. But yeah, there's, there's, uh, pictures in the uh in the artifact book of modern glass points that are found artifacts you know say only 200 years old or so yeah and this one was uh i think they called it uh, milky milk glass or milky glass something like that it was a, a, almost a a white opaque looking glass yes uh, yeah that's a very common glass from the actually that's probably from around the, the early to mid 1800s um it, I've only seen a couple of them, and one of them was in a photograph, so uh, I can only say I've seen one personally. And I think the reason we don't see more is, first of all, there wasn't a whole lot of, um, of that broken glass that was of a thickness that could be napped into a, a serviceable point. But the one thing is, though, is that when natives ran across a product or a resource or a technology that was superior to their own, they would immediately abandon the old technology for the new one. There's reports of when the Spanish wrecked their ships here along the coast in Florida that the natives were fighting over the nails they were getting out of the ship planks to use as pressure flakers 
because it was superior <laughs> to the antler pressure flakers that they had been using. Um, so it's inter- that's I think that's why you won't see that stuff very often is because they just simply shifted over to that newer technology as soon as it was available. Because why am I why am I wasting my time making out of, this out of a piece of stone when this guy just showed me a piece of steel? that it will bend instead of breaking and I can resharpen it just by, you know, honing it and that, and that sort of thing. Um, in Australia, for example, the Aborigines in the uh, 18, I'm sorry, the early 1900s when the telephone and telegraph came to Australia, they were climbing the poles or throwing rocks up there to break the insulators off and they were napping points out of the porcelain insulators off the poles. Yep. Yep, I've, and I've that was that actually well. fairly common. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen, pl- I've actually seen a decent number of those. I had a friend of mine who lived in Australia, and so I've seen some of those from personal experience. But that uh, anything that could be used that was easier than what they had before, such as glass, for example, yeah, they were absolutely going to use that. Wow, very interesting. Very interesting. I wanted to go back and... and mentioned something uh we talked about a second ago you talked about finding obsidian in florida and it's a little bit of an offshoot on that but i'm sure you're aware of it that there's the theory uh that the mayans or aztecs somehow find their found their way to florida whether rather whether it was through uh small boats or if they just simply followed the shoreline the massive way around through uh, Mexico and Texas and down into Florida. And of course, it uh, being that there's not a lot found along the way, one to almost speculate that they did have, you know, enough boat. I mean, they had massive settlements. So clearly they had the technology to make boats, um, but they could have traveled across uh, the Gulf of Mexico and then simply brought that obsidian that they were using with them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm so glad you reminded me of that because I had forgotten about that connection with our friends across the pond over there because uh, there is some examples of South America, Central and South American uh, influence on some of our pottery designs. So, and that's also at that time when you would have had that trade. And now that you mention it, our closest source of obsidian would be Mexico. Right. Yeah. And there's even, I guess, other correlations like the, the names of places like Mayaca and Miami, you know, are right into the, the Maya uh, term, uh, which I'm not uh, a language type of person really, but I remember reading that at one point where people were drawing a correlation. So I don't know how significant that is really or not. But man, if you could find uh, somebody that had, you know, genuine obsidian found in Florida and then trace it back to where, whether it came from Mexico or from, say, Utah or something like that, you would, you know, that could definitely rewrite history. Oh, absolutely. I recently saw a television program where a large obsidian point was found in Hawaii, which is not terribly unusual because there is obsidian in Hawaii. But when they looked at it, it was of a variety that was not found in Hawaii. And the closest source is Mexico. And when they did the chemical analysis on it, it matched the Mexican obsidian. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, I know there's lots of theories about... uh especially the Pacific people, you know, traveling by boat. I mean, clearly they did it. That's how they got to those places. Um, but we don't never, I don't think anybody uh, has really grasped the idea that they came all the way to America and then back. But that's starting to be challenged more and more 
all the time as they're coming up with, I don't know, what is it, Polynesian yes. uh, connections in, in America, in isolated places. It's pretty interesting stuff. Very, very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. And I'll be honest, I'm I'm sitting here as I listen to all this and I'm thinking of a lot of different questions I would I would really like to ask and, and the the pottery discussions are another one another topic I'd love to spend time on because it's it's over the years it's one thing that I've gotten to where I actually enjoy finding for various reasons as much or more than finding a a stone point because um, if you really if you really start looking at those pottery pieces, there's there's all kinds of little details that you can pick out, and and every every one of them's unique. Which that again, that's a that's a whole nother that's a whole nother <laughs> discussion. But we we are we are getting close to an hour and a half mark, so I I do think we we probably ought to wrap this one up, Ryan. But Michael, I'll tell you what, um, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. And if it's something you're open to, I would like to reserve the right to request you. You come back and join us again sometime in the future. Yeah, I would absolutely love to do that. I could. I feel like I could sit here and talk to you for like 10 hours straight, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, me and Ryan have just about done that in the past. And I'm sure we could do it again. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I think would be really interesting is if uh, – if him and I just started talking like we do sometimes and then record that because we go to all these strange places talking that most people probably wouldn't understand. You know, we're talking about techniques of, of making and techniques of hafting and bouncing ideas back and forth off of one another. And I'm, I imagine it's probably very entertaining to listen to. Uh, but it's not very interactive. <laughs> We're well, just I, talking. I, I, sure, <laughs> sure. And I tell you what, I I actually I have a thought about that of how we could possibly make that happen. So, um, if you guys will will hang on the hang on the line here just a few minutes after we wrap up, I'd like I'd like to I'd like to talk about that just a minute. Okay. Absolutely. Sure. All right. Well, Michael, again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, again, I, I, I will most likely be reaching out to you again to, to get you on the show. And Ryan, I really appreciate you uh, coming on here and doing this with me. Hopefully we can uh, we can get some of the, the scheduling worked out a little bit uh, quicker on the next one. And it won't be so long before people <laughs> get to hear from you again. OK. Yep, for sure. Sounds yeah. good. All right. Well, thank you guys. Have a good night for everyone else. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors. Take care, everyone.